Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through all the way through verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. Continuing verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood before, behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day. From the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord. And in his servant Moses. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to God. While we've been working through our series on the Exodus. And we saw last week that the very famous text about the Passover and the slaughtering of the Passover land and the spreading of the blood over the doors and how God came and took the firstborn of all the sons of Egypt and but spared the people of Israel because of the blood of the lamb that atoned for their sins so that they the wrath of God did not fall upon them. Now there is a change that happens now in this 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 account. 
People of Israel flee from Egypt. In fact, the Egyptians are so happy to see them go. They're giving them their wealth and their riches. And they head off into the desert, now seeking freedom. And over the course of this chapter in chapter 13 and then chapter 14, what we see is that God leads the people of Israel in a pillar of fire, a, a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. And don't think of this as being like a one little kind of cloud that's just one lonely cloud in the sky. Think of this as a tornado of fire that is before them. This is a mighty uh, display of who God is, the angel of the Lord going before them, God in his might going before the people of Israel, his presence with them. But soon after they head on out into the deserts, Pharaoh changes his mind and begins to go after them. And the response of the people of Israel is the response that you and I would have if an army was chasing us down. We would be scared. And in fact, that is the heart emotion that goes on and actually shifts over the course of this chapter. If you were to follow uh, some of the streams that run through this chapter, one of them is fear. In verse 10, it says that they feared greatly when they saw that Pharaoh uh, was coming after them. But then in verse 13, the command of the Lord is in view of Egypt coming after them and Pharaoh coming after them with all of his chariots and all of his horsemen and all of his soldiers, his great army, the greatest army of the world at this time, God's command and call to the people of Israel is, fear not, stand firm, be silent, fear not, it says in verse 13. And then at the end, at the very last verse of the account, these people who at the beginning of the account, when they see Pharaoh and his armies coming, at the end of the account, they are no longer afraid. Instead, it says this, And Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. And so the people, they didn't fear Pharaoh and fear horses and chariots. They feared the Lord. Fear is the emotion. It's directly con connected to the emotion one has when you come in, in terms and in view of the glory of someone else. The glory of God or the glory of another person. Now, we don't usually necessarily think of other people as being glorious, but to use the, the, the term, the Hebrew word for glory, which is kavod, is actually in its plainest terms is weight. And that there are people in your life who carry weight in your life. Who, uh, you, you, as, a, as a child, you trust your parent. They hold weight in your life. A spouse holds weight in your life. A boss holds weight in your life. And in fact, in this account, just as there are three occasions where it shows how the people of Israel go from fear to the command by God to saying, fear not, to at the end of the account, we see that God then says that they were no longer feared Pharaoh, but instead they feared the Lord. In other words, they were in awe. They lived in view of the weight of God's glory. We see that this account is also, just as there's three accounts about fear, there's a stream about God's glory. For example, in verse 4, it says this, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. In other words, I will prove myself to be of greater weight than Pharaoh. And in verse 17 and verse 18, we see it happen twice. He says this, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after, into the Red Sea, after the people of Israel, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and all his chariots and all his horsemen and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. Now notice the challenge here. Understand the right application of Exodus chapter 14 is you just need, to, you can stand up and fight the great armies in your life. That is not the right application to this account. The right application, the right interpretation of Exodus chapter 14 is this. It's asking this question. Who will you fear? Pharaoh or Yahweh? Who will bear more weight? Who will have more glory in your life? Man or the Lord? That is the question. Who will have more glory, Yahweh or Pharaoh? In other words, who gets to control your life? Pharaoh or Yahweh, to whom will you identify your life? Are you more connected as a slave of Pharaoh, a slave of man and to the whims of, their, of how they view you and how, whether they accept you or they don't accept you, or will you identify with Yahweh, 
and his call upon your life. To those for whom the Lord and his glory and who he is, for the, the, to them who God's glory is weightier, well, when they, all the things that threaten them, those people will be the ones that will actually be the live into God's command in this account. And what is God's command? Fear not. Fear not. Fear not man. Fear not the things, the circumstances in your life. Fear not what man can do to you. Fear not the evil dictators of this world. Fear not those evil dictators who live in your house or work at your work. Fear not the evil dictator who rules in this world. Understand there is a spiritual application that we're looking at this morning. Fear not the one who would demand that you live your life for sin and the things of the world. Instead, instead serve the Lord's. Fear not, he says. He doesn't just say fear not. And actually, if we were to read verses 13 through 15, here's what it says. This is a clear call and command. It goes on beyond fear not. It says, fear not. Stand firm. What that means is this. As you're not the bird who hears the hunter coming and flutters out of the nest. That you're not, when you see the Egyptians coming, when you see man coming in their lack of acceptance and their anger, and you see the evil one coming to tempt you, you do not run around and say, oh my goodness, henny penny, the sky is falling, and run all over the place. No, you stand firm, and you look for the salvation of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. What that means is you'll be quiet at heart in the midst of life's challenges. When the, the people in your life who would demand to hold weight, when the evil one who rules this world, spiritually speaking, who, when he comes and demands to hold weight in your life, you'll say, I'll only be silent. I'll have a quiet spirit. And then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And what that means is this, is you are necessarily looking to do great things. This isn't strap on your armor and you're going to go defeat the Egyptians. No, what this means is you continue to be faithful day in and day out to what God has called you to do. You go forwards. You go forwards. Fear not. Stand firm. Now make no bones about it. This whole concept is called to fear not and stand firm, to be silent and then to move forward is not easy, is it? When the rulers of this world, when the evil in this world beckons us, when the sins of this world, it is a difficult thing to say, no, I will resist and I will be faithful to what God has called me to do today. Fear not and stand firm. As the greatest in the world bears down on you, on you you'll fear not. Be silent. In other words, have a quiet spirit. Move forward. And you might ask the difficulty of this. People of Israel looked at Moses and they go, move forward where? Into the sea? Because that's what moving forward means. Because sometimes the Lord is calling you to move forward in places that you cannot understand why he would call you to go there. And God says, you have to trust in me. You stand firm. You fear not. And you take the next step. This is the call. Fear not, stand firm, take the next step. But the only way in which you'll be able to do that is if God in his glory weighs more than the things of this world, than the ruler of this world, that holds more weight than the people in your life. You see, the Lord will fight for you, he says. And so here's our theme this morning. Our theme is this. The faith that allows us to fear not, to stand firm, and to move forward is a faith that sees the glory of the Lord's salvation. That is what this text is about. Will you see the weight, how awesome and mighty and powerful and weighty your God is and his movement to fight for you, to deliver you, and to save you? So I want you to see God's weight, God's glory in three ways this morning. The first is this, is that you would see the glory of God's wisdom and saving through foolishness. And saving through foolishness. We see this in verses 1 through 9. I want you to understand what's going on. There's a bit of um, strange. God is a strange navigator when it comes to getting people out of slavery. If you were to actually look at a map and see where the city of Goshen is and where Ramses is and where some of these cities that are mentioned here in chapter 14, these cities where uh, Israel is at and the direction of their journey, is there's a couple different options you can take in order to go to Canaan. And the most prominent one is to go up to the Mediterranean and to follow the Mediterranean Sea along the sea path 
It was the most well-traveled path in fall where there was lots of places to get food and water, and it would take you about two weeks to get to Canaan, to the promised land. Instead, and also, by the way, it's the quickest way out of Egypt. Instead, if you were to look at a map, instead of going north and east out of Egypt, what God calls the people to do is to go south. In other words, God's navigational plan for the people of Israel is to go further into Egypt. Further into Egypt. In fact, the Lord actually tells them, go back. In verse 2, it's how it describes. Tell the people of Israel to turn back. Don't leave Egypt. Go further down into Egypt. It makes no sense to go down to the Red Sea. It makes no sense whatsoever, geographically or even militarily. The Lord seems to purposely and specifically be putting his people in a place between a rock and a hard place. He drives them down to the place where the only options are to be at the sea and to be driven into the sea or to try to flee into the desert where there is no provision. The last place you go is to have your back against the sea. Any military strategist would have recognized this and said, this is not a very good plan. This is actually a quite foolish plan on God's part. But we have to understand that God often veils his great wisdom under foolishness. For it is a ruse. If you actually read those first couple, of, those first couple of verses, there in the middle part of in moving into verses six through eight, we look at see that God's intention here is to actually entrap Pharaoh. That Pharaoh goes, "I've changed my mind." And he goes after the people of Israel, and God goes, "Yes, you have fallen right into my plan." This is God taking a strategic advantage by his people playing rope-a-dope with Pharaoh. This is what God is doing. And Pharaoh is going to attack his people of Israel, but in this way and by this means, God will bring a destruction upon Pharaoh and upon his army once and for all. So here is, there was a purpose after all. That God is actually trying to draw Pharaoh and his army to a place where he can end them and put, destroy them in front of God's people. But there is something even more going on here than God's military strategy. So he also, he doesn't just simply want to destroy the people of Egypt. He also wants the people of Israel to see that Yahweh fights for them. That it is not about their ingenious navigational skills. It is not about their great military might as a people because they don't have any. But instead it is about this truth that when God's people, when they will rely on him, God says, I'll fight for you. In verse 14, God says it very plainly, Yahweh will fight for you. And God places his people very often and very purposely in weak and vulnerable positions so that, why? So that his muscles can be shown. So that we can say, our God is great. Our God is powerful, for his power is made perfect in our weakness. And in fact, the Psalms and the prophets, there's over 20 times in the New Old Testament that the, the various prophets and the Psalms and the, will point back to this event and they'll talk about how God and his power and his might opens a way of escape for the people of Israel. That when what appeared to be foolishness for us, what appeared to be a God driving us into a cul-de-sac, God opened a way. You see, what happens, what appears to be foolishness to man is the wisdom of God to win the victory. And this seems to be God's way throughout the scriptures. God loves to use the weak and the foolish of this world to bring about his salvation. The Apostle Paul understood this, and he even said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. Paul is speaking to a very wealthy church who would be, you know, would have the means to go have a great church marketing program. And here's what God has taught Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord's. God displays his glory, the glory of his wisdom, by working in ways that the world looks at and says, that is foolishness. Do you know, one of the greatest revivals that happened in the Great Awakening, in, in, around the same time of the Great Awakening here in America, there was also a Great Awakening that happened in Scotland. In one particular city, there's a city called Campus Lang, in which there was a pastor there who was actually a part of a great revival. And his name was William McCullough. It's about four, this little city, is a little hamlet, about four miles outside of Glasgow, Scotland. And in this particular parish, this, this pastor was sought to be faithful, but he was known to be a very boring preacher. 
He was more of your scholarly type pastor. In fact, his own child described him this way, that he was not a very ready speaker. He is not eloquent. His manner is slow and cautious. In fact, his own parishioners called him the ale minister because when he would get up to speak, the men of the church would get up and go to the local pub to drink through his sermon. So he was known as the ale minister. And yet... In one particular season of the life of the church, he began preaching through the doctrine of regeneration, how God, how we need to have rebirth, and how we need the Spirit of God to fall on us. And what happened in their little town and little hamlet is that hundreds began to repent. And the church was radically transformed overnight. Not through some flashy, great preacher and teacher, but frankly, those who would rather go have a beer in the pub than listen to. People whose own children said he was boring. Because God loves to use the weak and the foolishness of this world. Now, this this strategy might sound familiar for those of you that have a gospel ear. Because this is the gospel approach as well. It's because God actually did the same approach, the rope-a-dope on Satan in order to draw Satan in with the cross. To Satan, it must have seemed as if this, this is great. Jesus has come, and he is going to be condemned, and he's going to be put to death on a cross. You strip him, you beat him, you crucify him, and on the cross, he is so vulnerable and so weak. It is here that Satan comes with his greatest temptations. He's like, here, he's in a spot where I can defeat him. And yet it is through the cross and through Jesus enduring all of Satan's temptations that our salvation and our victory is won. And he makes atonement for us. This has been God's pattern, the foolishness of the gospel, that God himself would become weak. Now, let me apply this to your life. Because the reality is some of you are like Israel, and you're kind of doing this with your life. And you're going, hey, God, the promised land is that way. And we're going this way. I, God, the fastest way between two points is a straight line. And you have me moving through a desert like a squirrel, chasing his own tail. What is going on here, God, with what you're doing with my life? You cannot understand why God has led you to the place where you find yourself. A place of maybe loneliness or difficulty It seems like those same sins that dogged you 10 or 15 years ago that you expected by now that you would be a strong Christian, great and mighty and mature, and that you would have your cape flapping in the wind, and that you would no longer be struggling with those things, and yet those same temptations continue to dog you day in and day out, and you wonder, God, why in the world do I still struggle with this addictive behavior? It's something I struggled with in my teen years and in my 20s as I wrestled with various habitual sins in my life and going, God, you're sovereign. I have a really robust understanding of the doctrine of your sovereignty. And so if you can take this from me, why don't you take this from me? If you can lead me to the promised land and do it quickly and defeat all the things that enslave me very rapidly, why don't you go ahead and do it? Haven't you ever asked that question before about various sins in your life? And you wonder why in the Lord the Lord has brought you here. It could be because God is wanting to do a deeper work in your life than simply snapping his fingers. That he actually wants to develop an intimate relationship with you where you learn to trust him even when you don't understand what he is sending you through. He has brought you to a place where you ask God, what's going on with my life or with my kid's life or with my spouse's life? And you look at your life and you go, I don't understand why I'm here. You ought to be at a place where your addictions no longer catch up to you, but they're running after you. And you admit to yourself that they're too big for you. And you actually have to become small and weak and see the Lord do redemptive work that is, that is not a facade, that is not a snap his fingers, but one where you have learned to trust him in tears. This is what God calls us to do. To be a people when our backs are up against the wall, when all that is coming against us, the enemies against our soul, buffet us and come against us, in which we would go, Lord, I have nowhere else to go but turn my eyes up to you and to cry out to you. All of my earthly wisdom and abilities, all of my attempts to protect my own heart and to defeat sin by my own abilities has come to naught. I need your abilities to fight for me. And you learn to trust more deeply. God uses foolish things. He uses the weak ones in this world in order to display the glory of his wisdom. He also does it. 
He also, we see in this account, he shows the glory of his graciousness to feckless people. We are weak, but we're also so feckless. The glory of his graciousness in fighting for the feckless. I use that word very, very clearly. To be the, to be the word feckless, it means a lot, not just lacking ability, but it also means you lack character. You lack character and faithfulness. Israel's response when they see where the Lord has brought them and when they see Pharaoh coming down is to what? They have an utter meltdown. If you want to understand it yourself, simply linger on verses 10 through 12 for a bit and see if it sounds a bit like your own heart's. When financial struggles come your way, and the evil one loved to use that to cause you to question God, and you actually listen to your heart, and what you can hear is something that it sounds akin to the people of Israel. God, it was better back there. God, why did you bring me out here? I love, I think it's, it's almost comical what they walk through. Let's look at just a few of these things. First, what do they do? Well, they quickly panic. It says they cry out to God. This is simply a word that they simply give voice to their distress. In other words, what the people of Israel do is they quickly look for the panic button and they find it rather rapidly. That's the first thing that happens. Then they immediately, though, move into sarcasm and cynicism with God. Do you see? They begin to give jokes and their complaints to Moses. Did you bring us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? They suddenly are dropping into cynicism. I love this line. It's a curated, sarcastic lack of faith before the Lord's. Isn't this a great spot you've brought us, God? It's beautiful to be out here in the desert where we can all can die and rot, and people can find our bleached bones all over the deserts. It'll be awesome. Third, they blame. What do they do? They yell at Moses for bringing them out there. And then fourth, we see ridiculous revisionist history. Moses, we told you we we didn't want to leave Egypt. We said, leave us alone. We are happy here. Except if you actually go back and read the first couple of chapters of Exodus, there's all these accounts where they're crying out to God to save them. They turn on their Redeemer with their, when their expectations for what his redemption is supposed to look like, when their expectations are not met. Egypt may have not been that good. In fact, we know it was awful. But do you understand what they want? They would rather return to the prison of the life they once knew instead of move forward in a risk-filled life in which they have to have faith. And for so many of you, the reason why you're seeing no growth in your Christian life is because Egypt is still attractive to you. you. You believe in the atoning work of Jesus, but you actually, you haven't looked at it and you go, you know what, I'd much rather go back to the enslavement of Egypt. That was easier. I got up and I didn't have to think. I didn't have to live by faith. I didn't have to wonder where God was taking me. I could live in my cynicism and just go, hey, that God, he's forgotten us. And that is frankly a lot easier than having to look at God and say, I'm going to trust you. I don't understand what you're doing. I'm going to move forward and I don't understand where you're taking me. We, call, we see here the Israelites, they panic, they blame, they have revisionist history. But ultimately, you know what the Bible calls this? Rebellion. In Psalm chapter 106, verse 7, and speaking about the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel, and yet God's faithfulness, it says this in verse 7 Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but it describes it what? But they rebelled by the sea. That you're questioning, you're constant questioning and Demanding and blaming and cynicism and lack of faith is what God calls rebellion against him. It is a complete and utter rejection to his rule in your life. But despite that, do you see how God responds to a whining and complaining people? Do you you see God's response immediately to the people of Israel is stand firm, fear not, and see my salvation. Don't you wish as a parent when your kids are just whining at you all day, you had that kind of gentle response? Kids, just be silent. I will save you with fruit snacks. (laughs) I am here for you. I will fight for you. 
and he's immediately silenced. <laughs> the grace of a parent who puts up with the complaining of children. But do you understand how even more ridiculous it is what God has done? Here he is. He has displayed his might to bring them out and redeem them. And God's, and their response to him is to shake their fist at him and say, you hate us, you want nothing but worse things for us, and yet God's plan for them is what? Shh, stand firm, I will save you. God's plan is to carry out his plan, and they will see the salvation of the Lord despite their lack of faith, despite their feckle attitude. Despite the fact that they come and they go in their faithfulness to the Lord. You say, well, how should have Israel responded? Well, they should have responded with faith, right? This is a God who 10 times has bludgeoned Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the ring. 10 times he has destroyed them. He has promised back in Genesis 15 that he would bring them out after 400 years. And here it is, it is happening, and yet they don't look at it with any kind of logic of faith. But instead, they have the circumstantial alarm but what is so wonderful is Abraham, is Moses doesn't go to the edge of the sea in response to Israel's whining and complaining and set up a sign that says, Exodus canceled due to lack of faith. Everybody just go on back. Just go, you know, go surrender yourselves to Egypt. Exodus is off. Deliverance is off. Nope. That's not what happens at all. Now listen, understand this. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have faith. In fact, the whole point of this is that you would grow in faith. But very few things will grow your faith than seeing that when you are absolutely faithless, your God is still faithful and he's steadfast to you. That not all of God's gifts wait for a proper response from us. That here he is, he said, I have set up a trap for Egypt and all you guys have to do is wait and see how I'm going to destroy your worst enemies. And they're going, God, we hate you. You're so mean to us, God. And God goes, that's okay. I got you anyways. God is so good to us. And understand this, this is what's true about your faith all the time. If you were to simply go and look at the various gospel accounts over and over and over again as people engage with Jesus, we see all these places where people, their faith is so impure. Their doctrinal purity is off. Their, their, their strength of their faith is off. Their faith is small. For example, in Mark chapter 4, when the disciples are in a storm on a boat and Jesus is sleeping because he is so exhausted, and where do they go? How do they respond to Jesus? They don't go shake him and go, hey, Jesus, could you, could you, could you calm the storm? Where do they go? They shake Jesus and they go, don't you care about us? You want us to die out here, don't you? And what is Jesus' response? Is it, you know what? You guys just, you're professional fishermen. Screw it on. Let's go. Let's have some guts. That's not what he says, is it? No. What does he do? He gets up and he calms the storm. God is so good to us. He, he cares for us even when our faith has kinks in it. You know the woman with the flow of blood in Mark chapter 5 she has a flow of blood for 12 years and she comes up to Jesus and she doesn't bother him. Instead, she simply seeks to touch the hem of his, of his garments and she touches it. And Jesus says, who touched me? And she convinced herself, do you understand what's going on with her faith and faith in that moment? She believes in Jesus, yes, but she also has a syncretistic pagan-like religion. The kind of thing it says, if I could just kind of touch a robe. This is the kind of thing that cults do, right? This is the kind of thing that they sell on Christian television. You can get water from the Jordan River. And it will heal you. What do we have? We have a syncretistic religion, and yet God heals her anyways. Our faith has holes in it. It has kinks in it. it is, we are so unfaithful, and yet this is utterly, this should humble us because God is so good to us anyways. You see that your faith comes with a blubbering and whining like Israel. This is who you are. And yet how faithful and how steadfast and how gracious is the glory, is salvation of your God. How poor we would all be if God, God's blessings and helps came only when we, we were so faithful to receive them. Instead, he gives it to us even when we don't have good faith. That's a good God. That's a God you, that is worthy of following even when he takes you into difficult places. Third and lastly, I want you to see the glory of resurrection in assuring our freedom. And this one gets complex. Now, to help us get to the complex parts, we're going to simply finish with the easy parts, which is to look at the familiar Sunday school story here, right? The climax of the story finally arrives 
We have a precise summary of what God is doing and what he'll bring about, right? He actually tells Moses, here's what I'm going to do in verses 19 through 20. And he was find the special provision of the pillar of cloud and fire in which he forms a buffer between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel so that the army of Egypt can't get to them until right at the moment when God wants to remove the barrier so they go chasing after the people of Israel. And then God gives us the absolute, the, the narrative of the specific details. Let's walk through very quickly. We have the east wind in which God divides the sea, the Red Sea. Now, just as an aside, many people, many scholars, if you, if you care about these things, many people have tried to talk this away. That there is all sorts of natural explanations. And I would ask a good question. Why? It says that there was an east wind all night. Why did God take all night using a strong east wind when a snap of his fingers would have done the trick just fine? Now, some people look at this and they say, this is only natural causes. And some people like to look at this and say, no, this is a miraculous work of God, and I don't see why there has to be a dichotomy. You see, God can do natural means, but through natural means, bring about supernatural events. Could he use a wind to separate water? Yes, he could. In fact, the vast majority of the ways in which God moves and works in this world is your God is present through natural means. Most of what you do, how you interact with God, is through how he moves in common grace means in this world. We often draw a strong line between the natural world and the supernatural world, and God says that I don't feel like I need to even consider myself or concern myself with the line. I'm over it all. I'm over the natural and the supernatural. So make no mistake about it, this is miraculous. But we must not forget that there are miracles all around us. That God works through natural means to accomplish supernatural purposes. And we forget, as I hear one pastor say this week, we forget that this world that we live in is charged with the presence of our God in everyday life. That he is doing things that are amazing if we had the eyes to see. So God brings about an east wind Maybe perhaps natural activity to bring about supernatural events. Then we see the intervention of God in verses 24 and 25. The Egyptians are thrown into a panic. Understand this. It is so great that God attacks them right where they're strongest. Pharaoh goes out with what? What separated Egypt from all the other armies of the world this time? Their chariots. And it's right there that God goes after him. And he says, you're going to get stuck in the mud and you're going to get stuck right in the place where it's the most dangerous for you to be stuck in the mud. And he sends them in the disarray and chaos so they don't know which way is out of the sea. And then we see the reflux of the sea in verses 26 through 28 where the sea closes in on Pharaoh's army after Israel has already walked through. And this is how God gets glory over and over and again, isn't it? And he was supposed to take, God takes the thing that was meant for our destruction. Egypt would have been fine to drive Israel into the sea, to destroy them in the death of the waters. The judgment of God could have come down upon Israel for their lack of faith. But it's in this place that God actually brings about their deliverance. The very thing that Pharaoh thought was the key to his victory, the chariots, ended up being the, the place of his doom. And then lastly, verses 30 and 31, we see God gives some final evidence and it is really important. The Egyptians, it says, that their dead soldiers begin to float on the shore. Now, this is not simply a macabre detail, simply for us to, for, for us to go, yeah, dead Egyptians. No, this is, this is evidence to the people of Israel. That Israel has saw God's power. And what do you know when the one who has enslaved you washes up on the shore dead? What do you know? You are free. See, I want you to consider with me for just a moment. What would have happened if, if Pharaoh and his army had not been driven into the sea? Do you think they could have caught the people of Israel on the Canaan road, moving towards Canaan, even in that two weeks? Absolutely. Do you think they would have been, if once the people of Israel made it to the promised land, he would, uh, Pharaoh would have gone, they made it to the promised land. They made home base. You can't tag somebody out when they're on home base. No, he is the greatest army in the world. He would have continued to go after them. What is God doing? He is guaranteeing, guaranteeing their freedom. Guaranteeing their freedom. You see in verses 15 through 31 that if Israel is to be rescued, Egypt has to be decimated. If there's going to be deliverance for Israel, then there has to be a, a destruction. Not simply a, we ran away from it. 
from our enslavement, but there is a destruction of all that has enslaved us. That means the enemy has to be wiped out, destroyed. He cannot simply be swatted away to come back later. If Israel is going to be actually free from what enslaved them, then what enslaved them has to be put to death. Now we're going to spiritualize this in all the right ways. This is not, you can fight the army of Egypt yourself. That's not the way to interpret this. Here's the way to interpret this, is to understand this. That God's deliverance for you, he put to death the very thing that for your life has enslaved you. And the New Testament, when it takes up the account of the Exodus, it always connects the Exodus to what we would call our baptism. I'm going to ask you to do some thinking with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, I'll probably just read the first two verses. It says this, Paul saying, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's the cloud of God's presence that led them, saw in chapter 13 and here in the early part of 14, all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What is going on here? What kind of weird theology is Paul doing What Paul is doing is he's recalling the Exodus for the benefit of his Christian audience. And he's saying that just as the Israelites experienced the Exodus, they were under God's guidance and under God's cloud and under God's leadership. They were guided and protected by God and they were led by God's representative Moses. It was by this guidance that they were passed through the sea. The unusual part of the passage, though, is how God connects this to our, this baptized into Moses and connects it to us. Now, Paul's drawing an analogy here between what happened in Israel at the sea and what happens to Christians in our baptism or what is signified in our baptism. By being baptized, what we say with someone who has water poured on them is ultimately in the shortest terms of someone being, is being identified with God. You are now in a covenant relationship with God. And as a part of being identified with God is you are giving expression to the fact that this person is in Christ and is being identified with Christ that they are leaving all their old identities. All those old identities are dead and gone and they're now being identified with Christ in his resurrection. That we once were identified with enslavement to sin and death and now we're identified with Christ in his Life, his resurrection. By being baptized, this is what we're communicating. In other words, Christian baptism is the process where we undergo our own exodus, our own moment of deliverance. If you grew up in a Baptist church, you would have heard this over and over and over again. This particular analogy, that baptism signifies going into death and being raised to what? New life. Yeah, there we go. My good Baptist hiding in a Presbyterian church. I have things to say to you about this passage, but we will not go there. <sighs> this is Paul's point about the, the Israel's, passage, Israel's passage to the sea. The crossing the Red Sea was Israel's baptism, where God's people left an old way of life, their old enslavement, and all that enslaved them is now dead and gone, and they're now being ushered into a new way of life. Finally free from Egypt's enslaving power. The Red Sea incident becomes for Paul a powerful illustration, a foreshadowing, a forecasting of our final deliverance in Christ Jesus. That we, like the Israelites, have passed through the sea of sorts. We have begun a new life. We are now identified as ones who are free in Christ. We are no longer slaves. Now, Paul takes this up, doesn't he? You want to see the greatest example of this is in Romans chapter 6, where we see this old life, new life connected to baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 11, following in your own Bible, it says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What does it mean to die with Christ? What does it mean? It means sin no longer has power and control and dominion over your life. We continue on. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Hear that terminology? Slaved, enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I read all that, and here's the point. That Jesus provides the ultimate exodus for us. A deliverance not from enslavement from Egypt, but a deliverance far greater than enslavement to Egypt. But all that enslaves you in your old life, all those habitual and addictive sins, God has said, I am coming to free you from sin and death. And understand this, that there is a connection between the Passover and the Red Sea. Just as there is a connection between the cross and resurrection. If the Passover reflects an emphasis on God's atonement and God's washing our sins away so that we don't receive God's wrath, well, the Exodus in the Red Sea reflects an emphasis on the ultimate elimination of sin's power over us. The Passover washed Israel clean. It's a means by which they were then set free, but their ultimate freedom came at the Red Sea in the Exodus when God destroys all that had enslaved them, and so the same for you and I. You see, God's work in the cross and the resurrection, they go together. At the cross, he cleanses you of all your sins, but at the resurrection, we can know that he has defeated all that held us and that chained us. He has defeated sin and death. Alec Materia, who's a commentator, said it this way, The cross is the finished work of salvation. The resurrection is the act of God which confirms the reality of his finished work and gives us the assurance that our sins indeed have been forgiven and our eternity made secure. In other words, the resurrection is God's receipt to us that sin no longer holds us, that death has no sway over you anymore. That because Jesus was risen from the dead, you can look at sin and Satan who's coming after you like Pharaoh came after Israel. You can say, you have no power here anymore. He defeated sin. And I know he defeated sin because death itself washed up on the shore. He defeated sin and he defeated death for me. And perhaps that is why, actually, in the history of the church, you know, one of the the readings that the church has historically had on Easter Sunday is Exodus chapter 14. It is not a cross passage. It's a resurrection passage of moving into new life where you've been set free from all the death and all the sin that has enslaved you and held on to you. You see, the Exodus is God's deliverance from the power of sin. And coming on the other side of the Red Sea, we now have the evidence that death is our resurrection. We get new life, new life. So sin has been defeated. There's no more death to pay. And we know this because of the resurrection. And so let me ask you this. Are you still living as if you're a slave. You know, this is actually one of the things that they found when they, in World War II, when soldiers would come to liberate concentration camps, that, they, that perhaps sometimes days in, in a few places over a week before, in which the actual guards of those concentration camps had left the camp, they had abandoned all the prisoners, and yet what do they, what do they, what do they find, the American soldiers find as they showed up? Everyone is still walking around the concentration camp. The guards are gone, and yet they're stayed, they have stayed in prison. And so how many of you are still in prison to what other people think of you? How many of you are still in prison to the emphasis and the temptation of the evil one who would say, I have made you mine. You cannot run away from this sin. I will keep you enslaved, and I will keep you chained and with this sin, and you know what it is for you. And what God says is this, no, no, that old life is dead. That old self is dead and gone. You are now free to live a new life unto him. You get to wander through the desert free of him with Pharaoh no longer nipping at your heels. And this is what you were to say to the evil one when he comes to tempt you. You have no authority here. I am the Lord's. He brought me through death. He put all my sin to death. He rose again. 
He, my sin washed up along the shore. Death doesn't hold me anymore. Death rolled up on the shore dead. In the Exodus, God is calling his people out from one existence to another, from one form of identity into another. And so let me ask you this. What is your identity? And how is your life display it? Does your life display a sense that God is all that matters? That the voice of my father and all of his glory and all of he has done, he has done for me to save me, that that is the weight at the bottom of my life. That the things of this world, that the temptations of the evil one have no sway over me. The fact of the matter is this, that whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in, we must remember that you, brothers and sisters, are not waiting for God's deliverance. You already have it. So live like it. Do not fear. Stand firm. And see the salvation of your God. Let's pray. God, the image of baptism is confusing for us. You bring so many different images and symbols to bear in this one sacrament. It's hard for us to understand. Lord, I, I pray for the covenant children in this room who, like the little kids, were dragged through the Red Sea and they don't remember it. And Moses is writing to them and saying, God brought you through death already. God has delivered you already. For those who are, by their own profession of faith, submitted themselves and walked through the Red Sea, and God claimed over them and said, you have new life. That old life does not claim you anymore. And as they wander through the wilderness that they would, win, they would remember that. That they would remember that Pharaoh is no longer nipping at their heels. That they would remember that their God is good. That they would remember that all that their God has done to accomplish for them the death of their sin, the death of death, and they get to live a new life of freedom and joy in Christ Jesus. God, we need this every day. To be awoken up to the reminder of our baptism be woken up to have your voice say over us, that old man is gone. The lies of the evil one, the narratives of the evil one, they don't tell the truth. Listen to the voice of the one who loves you, who has died for you. The one who is your king and your captain who will fight for you, who has delivered you already and will bring you home. He says, stand firm, fear not. And that whatever we face today, we remember our baptism and we take the next step forward. Give us faith, Lord, in what you've already done for us and accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.